So, you know, for me, um, I've sometimes felt frustrated that it takes me about seven years to write a new book. Uh, my books seem to sort of pop up every seven years. And, uh, but now I'm beginning to realize, having done like three or four of them, that maybe it takes that long to kind of immerse yourself in the detail and then, you know, and then sort of allow yourself to step back, to sort of just to ask yourself the questions of where is all this leading? Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So, um, one, here's a new development for me. Uh, one new thing that is going on for the first time for me is that I feel like my research is actually going well. Uh, yeah, no, this is a uh, second year of my PhD. The program uh, sort of is only actually supposed to be three years in, in the UK. But, um, you know, sort of in that sense, halfway through my PhD, I finally feel like research is starting to go well. Um, that I'm doing things both uh, that are interesting and, and, you know, sort of scientifically, I won't say important, but at the very least novel or, you know, that there's some, uh, I feel like that there actually is some substance to it. And then also just my own productivity. I feel like, okay, I am moving at the rate that I feel like I'm capable of and want to be at and all that sort of stuff. And that feels good. It, um, uh, you know, if, if you are a regular listener of the show, you know that earlier this year, um, I had a big failure for a major deadline, um, for, for, I think more generally it's called qualifying exams, but here at Oxford, it's, um, one's transfer of status. And that's sort of basically the halfway point of your PhD. Are you up to expectations? And I just wasn't. And over the last two months, that has just absolutely changed. And one of the big um, things that has helped that is my advisors. Basically, one of the problems that I was having was just things weren't right um, with that relationship. And uh, having that big, you know, sort of red flag come up was like, okay, we got to, you know, something has to change in, uh, you know, sort of mode of operation that we had going on. And, you know, um, it was not that anything was particularly wrong on either side, as in, you know, one or both of us was, was you know, active, actively acting negatively. But, um, you know, and I really appreciate this from my uh, two advisors that I have, you know, they've, they've, uh, they've helped me out in the way that uh, I need it. And I think the, the key thing for me that I'm, that I'm kind of reflecting on this is that um, initially, we were going with the default settings. So my my default settings are, I want my advisor to leave me alone. I want them to let me do other shit like this podcast and not tell me what to do. And, you know, I'm going to go read whatever papers I'm going to read and, you know, think about whatever experiments I'm going to think about. And then, you know, uh, all that sort of stuff. I want to be left alone. And my, uh, you know, advisor sort of default uh, patterns were to like, oh, you know, what does a student want? Well, yeah, no, just let them sort of let them do their thing. And uh, that's made for, you know, you know, I got some other stuff done besides PhD research, but it did not make for a good uh, situation for me actually getting research traction, that sort of stuff. And so the change that we made was that instead of going with those default settings, uh, I directly asked them for what I needed, not what I want. Uh, and, you know, the sort of uh, lax structure that I, you know, if you ask me, oh, Cody, wh how do you like to operate? I'm like, well, I just want, I want, you know, I don't, I don't want anyone charging me. I want them to leave me alone. Um, and so instead of going with what I want, I said, look, this is uh, what I need. Uh, for, for me, it was... Um, um, the main things were just tighten up the the regular meetings, hold me accountable um, because other like you know I you know basically I can come to my meetings with my advisors and and spin a story about what I'm working on and you know like what's what what what's all this and that uh, and make it sound like stuff is happening without actually having done anything and I think that'll probably sound familiar to a number of of, of PhD students out there but. Um, the, 
yeah, the big difference was to say, look, I'm going to come in every week with an agenda of what I've done this week and we're going to go over it. And then we're going to say, here's what I'm going to do next week. And then I'm going to go and actually do it. And since we started doing that, it's crazy. Um, I have done more in the last two months than I did in the first, you know, year and a half of, of the PhD and that um, uh, kick in the butt from having failed that 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 transfer to, um, you know, like I'm saying, switching from the default settings of my relationship with my advisor to going and asking them and saying, hey, this is what I need. Um, can you help me get it? And I think that's probably a lesson that's generalizable about one's relationship with one's advisor or, or manager or boss or whatever it is, is that, um, you know, there's going to be a default setting to that relationship. And oftentimes it's up to the, you know, the student, the, uh, the, the employee, whatever you want to call it to say, hey, look, this is what I need in order to be successful. Uh, and you can either provide that for me or help me figure out strategies to find, you know, the set of people who will provide that. And, uh, that's been a huge improvement for me. Um, I have a sense that it probably is, um, an improvement that would make a difference in lots of other people's trajectories right now. At any rate, uh, this week's guest is Simon Baron Cohen. He is professor of developmental psychopathology at the University of Cambridge, and he is the director of the university's Autism Research Center, as well as a fellow of Trinity College. Um, so, yeah, Simon Baron Cohen is famous for a lot of things. That was one of the things that that made this interview difficult. Is that he's uh, you know have such an illustrious career that it's difficult to touch on all of the things that he's famous for. Uh, but my main interest with him is in a field called theory of mind. So how do we understand? the contents of the minds of other individuals in our environment. And he, uh, he's made a number of contributions to this field, um, particularly with two very famous psychology tasks. So one is called the Sally Ann false belief task, in which you, uh, you know, I won't go into the whole situation of it, but it's basically this idea that, you know, you've got this setup and one person's looking at a couple containers and then you see that person, like, you know, a ball goes into one of the containers. Then the person looks away and someone comes in and sneakily moves the ball from one container to the other. Does the person who looked away know that uh, the ball has been moved? If you have a successful, you know, a, a robust theory of mind, then you can answer this question by saying, uh, no, they'll have a false belief about the um, about the where the location of the ball. And if you don't have a theory of mind, then you won't be able to answer that. You'll think, oh, no, no, the ball is in the other container, therefore they're going to think it's in the other container. So I actually had gone and explained the task. But at any rate, that's that, and that has been used literally gazillions of times in theory of mind research. It is, in, real, in, in many ways, the founding sort of experimental paradigm. Uh, the other one he's famous for is called Mind in the Eyes, which I won't go into, but both of which, suffice to say, uh, sort of by virtue of being famous and widely used, are both highly influential and highly criticized. And um, another, you know, I guess you could say that that's decently representative of, of Simon's work throughout his career, um, influential and criticized. Another example of that is his mind blindness theory of autism. Um, and, you know, by extension, the extreme male brain hypothesis about autism, the idea being that um, uh, essentially the, character, the, the defining characteristic of autism is uh, lack of this theory of mind, that you wouldn't be able to ascribe the false belief in the Sally Ann task. And uh, a lot, a lot of work, both from him and from the psychological community more widely has looked at this uh, idea. So he's featured as an important part of this, this literature on theory of mind, which is something that's sort of central to my interest in psychology. Uh, and uh, though, you know, it should be noted that he's moved on to other stuff in recent years, we don't talk quite as much about that. Um, we do talk a lot about his most recent book, though, which is in many ways the culmination of, of a lot of this uh, sort of stuff that I just mentioned. The other thing to note about him is that he was knighted in uh, the 2021 New Year's Honors uh, his, uh, it was for, quote, services to people with autism, as alluded to uh, just before. And, uh, it, you know, I uh, definitely uh, 
he deserved uh, this recognition along with lots of the other people who've worked on this topic. And um, uh, weirdly, I had reached out to him right before that announcement was made, though, um, you know, of course, it's been a couple months now uh, and uh, this episode is just now coming out. At any rate, uh, we had a really nice connection. I really enjoyed talking with him. Um, he floated the idea of doing a round two of the podcast in which we have a little bit more of a dialogue rather than the, uh, you know, uh, interview where I'm, I'm sort of peppering him with stuff. And so I look forward to, to talking to him again. Uh, but, uh, yeah, without any further ado, here is Simon Baron Cohen. So, all right, going back a little bit before that, uh, where, where did you grow up? I grew up in London. So... Um, not too far away from where I am now, just an hour away. Um, and um, just in North London, um, you know, my my father was, he worked in a, a store. He had his own store, you know, selling clothes. My mother was like a yoga teacher. It's kind of a, like an ordinary family. Um and I ended up studying somewhere much closer to you in Oxford um, and met some really inspiring teachers there, actually. So just jumping straight to kind of my student days, there was a particular professor who may still be attached to the, your department, but he's called Peter Bryant. He's a developmental psychologist. And he really got me thinking about, you know, how do we learn? How do our ideas change? How do children's minds grow? And just challenging the then the kind of dominant theory, which was Piaget's theory. Mm. So, you know, just had a, a really interesting time. Yeah. Um, so what, what do you think, what about that problem at the time stood out to you? Was it like, oh, here is an intellectual puzzle, but we, because we've got you know, the sort of figure like Piaget and, 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 you know, there's something clearly missing in what he's giving us. So let's figure out what it is. Was it an intellectual puzzle like that? Or did it connect with something, you know, that you'd experienced previously? What stood out to you about it? I mean, on the one hand, Piaget was this giant because he'd, he tried to put together child development from a cognitive perspective. And, you know, perhaps for the first time, you know, there'd been other grand theories like Freud you know, and Skinner, but no one had really tried to tackle the whole question about why do children end up with really quite different beliefs at different points in their development to teenagers or adults, you know, what's going on and how do our, how do our minds kind of unfold? And the fact that he kind of produced this grand scheme of like four stages of development, you know, he, he saw the big picture and he tried to kind of introduce some mechanisms for what would, you know, what would help or what would lead a child to progress faster or slower along that that pathway. Um, so in, in one way, it was very kind of inspiring to sort of see a thinker who was trying to tackle fundamental problems. You know, my my teacher in Oxford was the kind of young scientist at the time who was questioning you know, is it really the case that children can't do logical problems until a certain age? So was it underestimating kids? You know, was the theory kind of almost imprisoning, um, you know, making us mm. think that kids are stuck in certain stages until they get to the next stage? And producing, you know, elegant experimental data that showed that actually kids could do many of these logical reasoning tasks at younger ages than Piaget had given them credit for. But I then moved out of psychology to the next door department, which was called Human Sciences. Right. Because it just looked a lot more interesting. So what, what did Human Sciences entail? So Human Sciences was, was a very broad degree. It was a mix of biological and social sciences. And to me, I didn't want to just be kind of limited in thinking about the mind from a cognitive perspective, as if there was no brain, there was no genetics, there were no cultural factors. It was all just a kind of very, you know, Piaget's view was a very individual, individualistic, 
and purely cognitive view. To me, it was a kind of a very narrow slice of what humans are, whether we're talking about babies or toddlers or, you know, at any age, really. We're, we're obviously the result of multiple factors that influence us. And human science is just kind of allowed for that much broader scope. So I could hop over to learn some genetics or some cultural anthropology uh, or some demography, um, some linguistics, you know, it's kind of allowed for a, a, a much more integrative approach to thinking about the mind. So then, so that gave you sort of uh, a broad lay of the land from the sort of kind of interdisciplinary perspective. Um, and you had a sort of vertical of, of interest with the with the developmental psychology. How how does the mind progress from early infancy? And obviously before that is definitely a part of your interest. But, um, you know, through through the lifespan, when did you start to home in on what would sort of grow into your path in, in empathy and social cognition and theory of mind and that sort of stuff? Well, straight after I graduated, I was at this kind of fork in the road, just like most people when they graduate. You know, do you kind of leave the world of academia? Um, is that the end of your formal education? And do you move into the real world? Um, and I had the opportunity to work in a school for autistic kids this was um, in the early 1980s. Not much was known about autistic kids. Uh, this was a very experimental unit. There were only six kids and six teachers. Um, and it was experimental in the sense that every room, every classroom in the school had video cameras going nonstop so that they were recording every, every interaction that went on. Um, just because they had no idea what methods to use with these kids. Right. So they thought, let, so they thought let's collect a lot of data because you never know whether, when there's going to be an unexpected breakthrough, when a kid starts talking for the first time, or there's a connection between the teacher and the child, and you want to be able to rewind the, the film and look to see what worked, but also what, look to see what didn't work. So the end of the school day every day, the, t the staff, the team of teachers would review the videos of e from each day. It was like a kind of um, a naturalistic experiment. Yeah. No hypotheses, just kind of like just collecting the data to see to see what, what, what was worth repeating. And, you know, what could have triggered a tantrum or a meltdown or, you know, some aggression, you know, the, 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 the variability in behavior was huge and it was just difficult to get a handle on it, but the video kind of allowed us to capture it a little bit. And I, at the end of that year, it was like yeah. a, a one year kind of immersion into autism. I actually wrote back to my old tutor in Oxford and I said, look, autism is really interesting. You know, it brings together a real world problem, let's call it, with all the theory that I learned as an undergraduate, Piaget and so forth, you know, but how can I, how can I do a PhD in this? You know, because I could see that, that the, the, you know, that that autism as a as a question, you know, why does why does a child develop autism? You know, it was both a real world issue and also a kind of scientific, theoretical puzzle. Hmm. I just, I wanted to kind of understand it more deeply. So I wrote back to my old tutor and he said, you should go and study with Uta Frith, who at the time was a world leader. She was based in London at UCL. And it was just one of those great little letters that I received from him. It's like a signpost of, this is who you should go and work with. And it turned out to be really good advice. Turned out to be really good advice. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Um, so then, yeah, how clear is it at this point that these social um, cognitive deficits are taking place? I guess maybe my, my, one way to phrase this question is when did the concept of mind blindness as you sort of 
uh, when, when that was the sort of epicenter of what you were doing, when did that concept start to become clear? And what was the, was there a moment where it was like, oh, this is what's happening. This is the, the problem as, as we understand it. Yeah. Or was it a very graded, uh, like you said, look at the videos every day and then there's just that, you know, one little piece. What did that, what did that look like? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that year when I was working as a teacher was giving me plenty of data uh, about the notion of Lack of, lack of social awareness. You know, you could have an autistic kid who would come really close to your face, like an inch away from your face to look at you. So they're kind of intruding into your personal space without any sense of awkwardness or embarrassment. You could have an autistic teenager who would suddenly take all his, his or her clothes off in the middle of the classroom. And again, no, no sense of embarrassment that you would expect in a typical teenager. So there was that idea that maybe they're not really focused on what other people think about them. Um, but we didn't really call it theory of mind. We, that, that language wasn't around. We didn't really kind of talk about social cognition. It was more a, a sense of lack of self-consciousness, lack of self-awareness. Um, and not really being tuned into what the other person might be thinking. So very much a, a self-focused rather than an other focus. But, you know, I went to work with Uta Frith and it was a, a great opportunity because it was a, a medical research council um, unit. So kind of a pure research unit attached to UCL. And there were some researchers there, Alan Leslie uh, in particular, who who was very interested in this question about how, when do children start to understand another person's point of view, another person's uh, thoughts, intentions, what someone knows and doesn't know. So there was a kind of a lot of interest in the early 80s in this question about normative understanding and theory of mind had started to be used as a term. You may know it came from primatology, from the work of Premack and Woodruff does the chimpanzee have a theory of mind? You know, can another, a non-human animal uh, understand a human mind? Um, and just by, I don't know, um, serendipity, a paper was published in 1983 um, by um, Wimmer and Perner. So two Austrian developmental psychologists um, developing a paradigm for how you, how you could test this in a typical four-year-old. And we kind of adapted that for autism. It became known as the Sally-Ann test. Mm. So in one sense, there was a, a, there, was an, a, there was a moment where we had a, we had a test. Uh, it was kind of presented almost like a litmus test of whether a kid understands the concept of false belief, that somebody else can have a, a mistaken belief about the world. Um, and there was accumulating evidence that typical three-year-olds fail the test and typical four-year-olds pass the test. So it was almost like a quantum leap that was going on in cognitive development. And that autistic kids, despite having a sufficient mental age, they had, you know, they, they might have more than a, a four-year-old mental age, nevertheless struggled with these sorts of tests that they couldn't sort of appreciate that a different person might have a different belief about the same situation. So that was, um, you know, that happened all, you know, in a very, very short period of time. Our paper was published in 1985. Did you have any idea at the time how, what kind of life the Sally Ann task was going to have? Did, did you, when you, when you, could you possibly have like imagined how, how big, how influential, how many times people would, would, would use that task? Um, no, not really. I mean, I, I realized that we were dealing with something that was potentially quite fundamental because if right across the breadth of science, if primatologists were wondering about chimpanzees' abilities in this area and human developmental psychologists were questioning, you know, can a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a four-year-old do this? We're really looking at something that's potentially the result of the evolution of the brain, 
there might have been a change across species, you know, in evolutionary time. Mm. So I, I had a sense of it's kind of, it was bigger than some of the questions that psychologists tackle. It might have kind of universal relevance. Um, but in terms of the actual experiment, you know, just like any PhD student, you get a bit too close to it. You get, you know, you're, you're immersed in it. You don't sort of think about this in terms of its historical legacy or whatever. So <laughs> we, 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 we conducted the experiment with little plastic dolls. And after I finished my PhD, the equipment, as we might call it, in the experiment was just left in a cupboard somewhere. I didn't kind of think of it as, you know, important to the history of science or anything. I think somebody may have retrieved those little plastic dolls at some point. And <laughs> it's, it's probably healthy that you weren't considering the world historic importance of your of your PhD research at the time you were doing it. That's probably yeah. plausible. Just get just get through the PhD. That you know, that's the main goal. So uh, one thing that I'd love to know about is is what was your what was Uda like as a as a mentor because she's you know such a big figure in the the field and everything like that. So what was yeah. your relationship like with her? What did you learn from her? And then were there things that you took from her and implemented in your own uh, sort of experience as as a mentor? What did that look like? Right. Yeah. I mean, Uta. Anyone who's worked with her, she's 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 very positive she's a real enthusiast you know she loves a good experiment but also she loves to praise her students to make them feel like they're saying something important so those are kind of you know it's great to be on the receiving end of that if you make a small suggestion she amplifies it as if you've made a really important suggestion um the other thing is that she's a great experimentalist so she's she's really good at seeing when an experiment is getting too complicated, you know, it's too too elaborate, too many conditions, you know, it's just too, um, I don't know, it's going to be difficult to interpret the data. So she simplifies, and I think that's, mm. you know, she managed she in, in much of her work, you know, what characterizes her work is a kind of elegance of the experiments, and I, you know, that was great for me to learn. That if you want to ask a question, don't let it get, don't let the method get too cluttered. Otherwise, you're going to end up, you know, struggling with how to analyze the data and having, you know, you might miss the kind of important conclusion that's just sitting there. Mm. You know, the simpler the experiment, the easier it's going to be to kind of see uh, if there is a real result. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I guess in a similar vein to that, I'm curious. Uh, what are the what are the books that have most influenced your thinking? So maybe something if there were things that around this time you were reading that 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 um, uh, yeah uh, you know it doesn't have to be academic work if there's if there's other uh, kinds of things uh, you know novels memoirs whatever um, yeah what are, what what's right. what's a handful of books that you feel like have have really influenced what you think right uh, well during my PhD the, the the book that influenced me most was by Daniel Dennett. Hmm. Uh, the philosopher, uh, and he he's really refreshing because you can read his his philosophy and understand it even if you're not a philosopher. You know there aren't many philosophers that can do that. So he was having a really big influence in psychology, precisely because he was he was actually taking the reader's perspective and realizing you know if you just write like a philosopher, no one's going to read your stuff. You know, but if you if you actually kind of make it readable, put it into ordinary language, you can get across some complex philosophical ideas, and they're going to have a lot more kind of traction. So his book was called The Intentional Stance. Um, it may have been published around the late 70s. I think it was 79. It was this, 79, okay. And, you know, it was this idea that whenever we go out into the world, we have this intentional stance switched on. And he has a he has a particular um, story in his book that every time we drive on the on the highway, we are making assumptions about everybody else who's driving on the highway. We're assuming that the person who's driving in the other lane coming towards us is a rational agent with similar beliefs and goals to our own. So we're going to stay in our lane, and they're going to stay in their lane. 
and that when we see another person behave in a kind of surprising or unexpected way, we might start questioning their belief system, their rationality. You know, we might say to ourselves, are they crazy? Why did they suddenly pull across my lane? But it kind of makes you think that in every interaction that you have socially, we're always thinking about, we're either implicitly making assumptions about the other person's beliefs and intentions and goals, or we might sometimes consciously have to question what is the other person's state of mind? And that's obviously uh, much more evident when you're, when you're talking to somebody who has a mental illness, for example, where many of the same, many of the, of the beliefs are not shared. Uh, you know, so a psychiatrist talking to their patient might have to make really big jumps to get into the mindset of the patient because the, the patient's beliefs are so different. If the person believes that they can fly, for example, um, or believes that they are the prime minister when they are patently not, you know, so delusional beliefs would, would require a big, a big leap. But, you know, Dennett's book really kind of made me realize how important this, this idea of taking the intentional stance, you know, how we kind of think about other minds all the time. We, we never switch it off. And then obviously the relevance to autism is that maybe this stance, this intentional stance, was never getting off the building, the, the building blocks in development, or was just developing much more slowly, much more effortfully. Um, you know, and the language changed. We started talking about theory of mind. I coined the term mind blindness uh, in my book in 1995, which was kind of pulling together a lot of the the experiments, the experimental evidence at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that uh, the intentional stance by Dennett, just incredible, incredible essay and contribution to that whole way of thinking about things. Um, so let's see. What, yeah, I guess what was, was what was the link between, did you, the initial getting this initial Sally Ann task off the ground, and then uh, I guess mind blindness was around the same time, right? Uh, so the Sally Ann task was published in '85. Oh, sorry. I, 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 yeah, yeah, I published Mind Blindness ten years later. That after I'd done, I'd done sort of my postdocs and right. you know, carried on working in that vein. I, I got right. confused because I uh, I thought earlier ninety I heard ninety five in my mind I was like you just anyway what's the what's the connect what yeah so tell me about that ten year period between uh, um, you know, that initial study yeah. and task and and well mind. you know like like in any field of science once you have a, an initial finding you want to validate it and you want to kind of dissect it in every which way yeah. So, you know, we had this, the result about false belief from the Sally Ann test, but we needed to know, I don't know, was it, was it an artifact of the particular methods we used or would it generalize across different methods? You know, um, would, it, would the same findings still be seen, you know, if you um, looked at older kids, not just younger kids or kids with different levels of IQ or language ability? You know, and um, you know, would the would this problem with theory of mind not just affect understanding beliefs, but understanding other mental states, uh, intentions, perception, knowledge, and then what about all the emotions? You know, understanding emotions. That that was another whole kind of realm that needed exploring. Um, and then what were the developmental origins of this? You know, how how far back into human development, could you trace theory of mind? Alan Leslie suggested at least back to 18 months old, when kids understand pretense. Um, Jerry Bruner, who was at Oxford for a while, suggested you could trace it even further back into what he called joint attention or shared attention. Yeah. You know, when a, a pre-verbal infant understands that when their parent points at something, you don't just look at the finger, you look at what they're pointing at yeah. because the infant understands that the adult who's pointing has an intention 
to share an interest with you. So it's kind of a meeting of minds. Yeah. You know, that was way, you know, tracing things back to, in a very exciting way, to, you know, between nine and 14 months of age. So kind of really trying to understand the developmental origins of this ability. Yeah. But then kind of moving forward, I, I really wanted to situate theory of mind in the broader concept of empathy. Because when we when we're looking at each other and wondering what each other are thinking, we're not just doing this in a very cold, unemotional way. Because if we discover through reading each other's faces or listening to each other's intonation or body language that actually somebody is uh, upset or somebody's suffering or somebody's a bit anxious, we don't just kind of register it like okay that's what they're thinking but we respond in a particular emotional way but you know that's the the empathic response and so i kind of moved my research kind of out of narrow theory of mind if you like and more into the this bigger umbrella concept of empathy yeah yeah um joint attention for whatever it's worth is a concept that I think about on a daily basis. Um, oh, really? One, one thing I'm I'm um, I'm a big fan of Michael Tomasello's work, who yeah. studied with 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 Jerry Bruner, and and I think extended the the, yeah. the concept very profitably. But I think about it every day with my dog because you know you gave that example of like pointing. You don't look at the finger; you look at what the person's pointing at. And every day I have to point yeah. my dog, and I say, "Go get the toy." No, no, don't bite the finger. Go, go get the toy. And yeah. I, every time without fail, I think about joint attention. So yes, this is this is a concept yeah. that, that plays an integral, yeah. meaningful role in my everyday existence. Yeah, but I think, you know, Jerry Bruner's paper, I think it got published in Nature in, it was around about 1975. It was all about joint attention. It was about gaze monitoring. You know, you look at someone's eyes and if they turn to look in a particular direction, the, in, the human infant turns to follow. Um, if they point, the, the human infant follows the point. You know, I think it got published in Nature because it it was, again, of potential huge significance. If, if human infants could do this, but your dog couldn't do it, was this an index of a, you know, a radical shift in the evolution of the human brain? And also joint attention some people talk about it in terms of reference in, you know, in philosophy of language, you know, um, the ability to, to refer to something, whether you refer to it by pointing or using a gesture or, or a word or a symbol, you're not, you're not saying to your listener or your observer, you know, look at, look at this, this thing, this mark on the page or this object, you know, it, this, this thing is meant to refer to something outside of itself um you know that's that's a huge milestone in i think in human evolution that we we can use you know we we can use one thing to refer to another we can use the index finger to refer to an intention to direct another person's interest for example or we can use the word moon to refer to that thing in the sky you know these are these are this is, you know it's huge and i think that's probably why it got published as a short note in in the magazine Nature. Yeah, yeah, and changing the relationship, the like the the structure of relationships from just dyadic, you have one person interacting directly with another, to a triadic, where you can now have that that third option yeah. that opens up the entire world essentially uh, as as the set of possible reference. Yeah. Um, so when I, you know, you 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 think about this on a daily basis when you see your dog every day. And for me, when I go jogging in the meadow just down the street here, um, and I see the cows just doing their own thing, eating the grass, you know, or the sheep, you know, you don't see them having these little conversations, even non-verbally. And the, 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 the whole basis of a conversation is to, it requires establishing a shared topic in the conversation. You know, somebody introduces a topic, could be an idea, it could be an object, and everybody kind of, as you say, in a triadic way, 
all attention is shared onto this third object. And uh, you just don't see that in other species. So again, it must be a huge milestone in, in evolution that we mm -hmm. can do that. Yeah, um, and I and I understand that's a big uh, part of your uh, uh, your most recent book, um, at least uh, the the milestones from histories, the pattern seekers. Uh, so we'll we'll talk about that in a second. One speaking of of the nature of conversation, one of the difficult things of having a conversation with you for the purposes of an interview is there's so many milestones uh, in your career to touch on that it's completely implausible to touch on all of them over the course of a reasonably uh, uh um, but i do want to ask you sort of in preface so to, to make sure we have enough time for the book but also just to sort of uh maybe maybe a good stepping stone for that is that uh, i'm interested about your theory of empathizing systemizing uh you know sort of yeah. spectrum and then also the extreme uh you know male brain theory of autism um, so yeah. obviously a ton to say on both those things. I'm interested, you know, whatever you think the the the, the big points are. But I guess I'm curious how is how is your changing on this front? How is your thought your thinking on this front changed over the past couple of decades? Um, sure. What is what does that look like? Well, I mean, in terms of the chronology of my research, we'd got to the point where theory of mind was now being situated within this. Um, bigger topic of empathy um, and I published a book um, called Zero Degrees of Empathy which kind of just took empathy and examined it from all kinds of different angles genetics, neuroscience psychology um, comparative psychology um, uh, so that was published in 2011 but before that, I published a different book called The Essential Difference, which looks at the role of gender. Um, just because when we were looking at empathy, we were finding gender differences. Um, at the time, it was politically very incorrect to even ask the question, are there sex differences in anything psychological? Uh, and so the, my book, The Essential Difference, that was published in 2003. And I was quite nervous when I published it, kind of straying into this political minefield, where even though I, we were just talking about differences on average between males and females, in the case of empathy, and we'll come on to systemizing in a second, you know, um, it was kind of opening up a very, you know, a very dangerous topic because there were still people, maybe there still are, people who want to deny that there, there are any average, on average sex differences in the mind at all. But when we were, when we were collecting our data, we were finding that girls were, were developing faster in terms of theory of mind and empathy. Um, we've published recent big data studies using something called the empathy quotient on 600,000 people. We published it in PNAS in 2018. The, the sex difference is still there. Um, so for me, I'm not a scientist that shies away from uh, questions that might not be politically correct if the data is kind of difficult to ignore. And we were finding similar things in systemizing. So I got interested in systemizing because, again, it stemmed from my interest in autism that so far in my career, I'd just been focusing on the social side of autism, the social difficulties. But we know that autism involves a lot more than just social difficulties. You know, there's a whole other side, which actually was very evident in Uta Frith's own PhD back in the 1960s, which was all about pattern recognition, that these were kids who seemed to be very interested in patterns in the world um, they were sometimes quite rigid about imposing patterns in the world, lining up their toys in, in particular uh, very rigid routines or patterns, wanting their day to be quite patterned. So, you know, they, didn't, they don't like change or certainly don't like unexpected change. Um, 
so I was I got interested in you know um, pattern recognition ability in autism um, also partly to explore not just the deficits in autism but areas that were intact or even above average sometimes autistic people there are super talented in pattern recognition you know they spot things that other people miss or they might be able to use their pattern recognition skills in fields like music or mathematics and race ahead relative to their peer group um, iq matched or age matched peers so-called savant abilities and so I, I was exploring that side too i call it systemizing because a system involves a particular kind of pattern and this is the kind of topic of my newest book it's called the pattern seekers but the patterns that humans i i argue alone can identify and play with are what i call if and then patterns so the if is usually an input of some kind the and is usually an operation that you perform on the input and the then is the output is what happens having performed usually a kind of causal operation um but the if in an if and then pattern is also uh it's the way that humans uh imagine you know what if i did this it's like it's that element of of you know forming a hypothesis what if i did this or you know um and you know the simplest example that i like to give of this kind of pattern seeking is in music and i got really interested in archaeology and going back to find the first musical instrument in human history it's about 40,000 years ago and it was a flute it's the oldest musical instrument that's been found and it you know it's it's you know i got and the book explores this this whole question about um how do human beings invent invent complex tools like musical instruments and is there a link with autism and systemizing so if you just imagine this flute for a second it was made from a, a bone a hollow bone from a bird and the person who made it might have been reasoning that if I blow down this hollow bone, there's the if. So even having the idea of picking up the bone and blowing down it, you know, would any other animal do that? But if I did that and I cover up one hole in the bone, then it makes a particular note. But if I blow down the bone and uncover the hole, it makes a different note. And suddenly you've got like the birth of music uh, the invention of a new system, a musical instrument, the invention of a system which is uh, music itself, which is a, a, a system of, of, of notes which have intervals between them um, and which you can vary, not just according to pitch, but rhythm and all sorts of things. So it's kind of, it, it, it encaps encapsulates very nicely this concept of systemizing. And we found gender differences in systemizing too but this time in the reverse direction that males on average seem to have a stronger interest in systems we measured this using something called the systemizing quotient so you know uh and then autism you know the idea that autism might be an extreme of the typical male profile an extreme of the male brain is this idea that autistic people if you can generalize struggle with empathy but particularly theory of mind but their systemizing might be anywhere from intact to superior they love systems and they seem to pick them up very very quickly and that could be seen through one lens as an extreme of the typical profile of of, of male development yeah uh yeah that's a great overview of that uh, so I want to I want to dig into the if and then uh, sort of key thesis of your of your book. So it strikes me that that that's a really great way to put it because you know if you have if then 
that that's you know sort of that's maybe that's a lot of you know oh I observed this once before and now I'm drawing this causal connection and like okay yeah I can see it. and and seems really important, um, yeah. uh, and so I, I think that that that's a really useful structure of it and particularly what I'm interested um, to hear you dig into a little bit more on that is. A big portion of creativity and invention seems like the ability to make connections between seemingly disparate ideas or processes or this or that. So if you look at your own, um, you know, sort of work like we've been talking about, there was, okay, well, the primate, uh, Premack and Woodruff are saying this in primatology, um, the Austrian developmental psychologists are saying this, and uh, Daniel Dennett in philosophy is saying that. So that's taking these disparate ideas and figuring out the causal structure that connects them, like that sort of stuff. So where, where, yes, where in, in the the pattern seeking, uh, you know, sort of framework that you're thinking of, does the idea to sort of synthesize between vastly different uh, areas uh, play in, particularly with you know, with human invention and creativity and all that sort sure. of stuff? Yeah. Um. So, you know, the if and then logic. Um, that does allow for combining ideas. So, you know, one of the earliest sculptures that you find in archaeology um, comes from a, about 25,000 years ago. Is a little figure um, that's half human and half lion. So it's got the lower half of the body is human and the upper half of the body is of, is a lion's head. Yeah. You know, somebody had the somebody had the idea of bringing these two things together. Yeah. To to make to make a fictional entity, and actually, you know, they they figured out how to implement it in sculpture. Maybe that was you the know, invention it, again, of, of conjunction. <laughs> well, that's the and part <laughs> as well, isn't it? That if I, if yeah, I take yeah, yeah. if I take the lower half of a human, and I combine it with the upper half of the lion, then I get this fictional entity. It's half lion, half human. You know, um, so you can sort of see that at a, on a kind of micro level in this sculpture, just as you can do the same thing with, you know, um, different fields that you were talking about. You know, a discovery in primatology and a discovery in developmental psychology, you can bring them together to see if it makes something new. Um, I think the other, maybe the other side of your, your question is, you know, that, um, that I think human beings vary in terms of whether they focus on the big picture or on the small detail. Um, and often people who focus on the big picture are able to kind of do that integration that you're talking about. They don't get so focused. I think in the US, they like to use the phrase getting lost in the weeds. You know, getting so focused on the detail that they kind of miss what the significance is. Um, and autistic people often do get hyper-focused on the detail. They really want to understand the inner workings of one specific system. Yeah. So they'll take, they'll take one object. It might be the, the toaster in the kitchen. And they'll take it apart to really understand all the variables inside that system. Maybe they'll put it back together again because then they really understand that system, you know, uh, but all that they're really doing in, in doing that is, is getting hyper-focused on one tiny piece of the world, you know, yeah. and understanding it to a much deeper level. And, you, you know, I meet autistic people who do the same thing with their computer, you know, kids who are given a computer and they don't just use the keyboard or the mouse but they actually kind of get their screwdriver out and open up the computer to find out what's inside it, whether they can change some of the components to make their computer go faster or, you know, to increase the memory or whatever it is. Yeah. So it's that same kind of focus on understanding a system. And it may be that there's this kind of extra factor that we have to build into this, you know, when we're thinking about creativity or invention, about whether in some inventions it benefits from being able to step back and realize what's the importance of it or what's the bigger context whereas there are other inventions which are much more kind of um local 
you know, they're focused on a particular mm. system. And any changes you make within the system might be, they might be kind of incremental. Sometimes it could be a game changer. But these are the sorts of ideas that I explore in the book. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that that's fantastic. Um, uh, sounds like a great culmination of a lot of stuff you've been working on for a long time. Uh, I want to I want to let you go uh, on time here, but I have one last quick question for you. Where do you fall on the uh, empathizing, systemizing uh, spectrum? Um, yeah, a few people have asked me this question, but I sort of feel that I'm too close to the tests to be able to take them in a kind of naive way. Hmm. So the honest truth is I've never taken these tests. Yeah. Um, but you can yeah, the pass the Sally Ann test. I can pass the Sally Ann test. All right, well. Um, I, uh, but, you know, that's pitched at a four-year-old. <laughs> so I'm at least at that level. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, you know, the, the empathy systemizing model allows for five different types of brains you know, some people being kind of more leaning more towards empathy, others leaning more towards systemizing. Some people who are balanced, they're, they're equally good at empathy and systemizing. And then the extremes of those. So, you know, extreme systemizers or extreme empathizers. Um, you know, I think what's, what's interesting about that model is that we all fall somewhere in that space. We're all somewhere in amongst those five brain types. Um, and, you know, maybe what I've done in my over the course of my career is to start off with a minority group in the population, which was autism, but then to try and understand them within the bigger picture, which is the whole population, uh, the so-called, you know, neurodiversity of, of human populations, that we don't all have the same kind of mind, you know, for partly genetic reasons partly other prenatal biological reasons like exposure to the sex steroid hormones, our brains are kind of developing very differently, leaning more towards empathy or systemizing. And, uh, you know, it is it is that, you know, now that we're talking about it, I can see that kind of constant zooming in on details in my own work when I'm looking at a particular scientific puzzle, but also zooming out and seeing how does this fit into the bigger picture. Yeah, to overgeneralize, it's almost like zooming in for the scientific paper and then a couple of years later, zooming out for the, the book uh, that contextualizes it for you know, the broader scientific and general community. Yeah, almost. I think that's right. Because yeah. when we're doing the science, which you and I both love, we do need to get lost in the detail. You know, you know and one little mistake yeah. And the experiment might might not be valid. So we really do have to pay attention to our measurement methods, um, the data analysis, you know, the interpretation of it. All of those details matter. But if you get if you get stuck at that point, you may miss its relevance to what's going on in the next door lab. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important that it's not doing both of those in parallel necessarily, though, you know, perhaps that's possible, but definitely in your case, it feels that there is an oscillation, uh, at least yeah. with when you look at one particular vertical of a uh, of a problem space, um, you, you start off in the one and then transition to the other once you feel like you've gotten through the details to at least a satisfactory level, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. you know, for me... Um, I've sometimes felt frustrated that it takes me about seven years to write a new book. Uh, my books seem to sort of pop up every seven years. Yeah. And uh, But now I'm beginning to realize, having done like three or four of them, that maybe it takes that long to kind of immerse yourself in the detail. Yeah. And then, you know, and then sort of allow yourself to step back. Yeah. Just sort of, just to ask yourself the questions of where is all this leading, you know? Um, and, you know, I'm very impressed by people who can produce books more frequently than that. But for me, that's the kind of oscillation cycle. Yeah, I love that. That's great. Um, awesome. Well, there are great. 
many key areas of your career which we didn't even touch on. Uh, for example, like you were talking about the prenatal exposure to testosterone. Um, but I think we, we hit some core uh, important stuff and um, certainly a lot of stuff that I've admired in your work. So thanks for taking thank the time to much. do this today. No, well, thank you for inviting me. And uh, it's been a fun conversation. It felt a little bit uh, one-sided. So maybe in a future podcast, I could find out a bit more about your work. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, well, we'll, uh, we'll when, when we have a when I have a occasion to do so, maybe we can uh, maybe we could. Do yeah, that. that'd be it'd be fun. I love that. Um, all right. Yeah. Thank great. you so much for taking the time and uh, good luck all. with um, you know uh, getting the the book book out there. I look forward to um, sharing it with with people and and, and all that sort of stuff. And uh, definitely you know play yeah. it at the beginning of this podcast and everything. So. When I, when I think of you in Oxford and during the pandemic, just stuck inside your house or your flat, you know, that's a bit sad. We're all in the same, same situation together. Yeah. But you're in a, re- you're in a really beautiful city. Yeah. So I hope, that, I hope it's not too long before you can enjoy a walk in your meadow. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> me too. Me too. Uh, all okay. right. Well, uh, thank you. And uh, I'll be in touch with the episodes released and, and all that sort of stuff. Okay. So. Great. All right. Thanks See you. That was my conversation with Simon Baron Cohen. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on Twitter at Cody Commerce or on my website, CodyCommerce.com, where you can look through my work or sign up for my newsletter. So thank you for listening, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution.